You're listening to In the Ring with Acacia Courtney. Thank you so much for joining me. We're on episode five now, which is crazy. I should do like a a top five list since that would just be all of them. But anyway, I'm laughing at my own jokes. It's been a long week, but we are in the full swing of the Kentucky Derby prep races as three-year-olds start to really kind of make their marks and, and be the standouts leading up to that first Saturday in May. Tampa, New York, California this past weekend. Last week, we had the grade three Holy Bowl at my home track at Gulfstream Park. So It's a fun time of year. I'm looking forward to talking about some of these pedigrees a little bit more in depth too and get some of the major players on this show in the coming weeks. So that'll be on the program coming up. So stay tuned for all of that. But anyway, another week, another sale coming up. We're in Kentucky this time for the Basic Tipton Kentucky Winter Mix Sale. And we have some really good stuff on the show today. We're really covering the entire spectrum with this week's guests. I'm excited for you to hear the different angles that they bring. And I think this will kind of be a good setting the tone episode for the rest of the sales throughout the rest of the year. Uh, Each of these individuals is involved in horse racing and the sales in multiple ways. And I think bring some really interesting viewpoints. If you're getting some snow this weekend, I hope you're staying warm. And this is a good chance to stay inside and listen to the podcast. So pleased to welcome in Jonathan Green. You may know him from the TDN Writers Room. You may know him as the general manager of DJ Stable. Has a lot of things going on within the industry, and I'm so excited to pick his brain today. John, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, my pleasure, Acacia. Thanks for having me on. Well, we're getting ready for uh, the Phasic Tipton Kentucky Winter Mix Sale. I know that you are are selling a few there and are going to be active throughout the rest of the year, though, in the sales a little bit. Um, give us a little background on, on what you're selling this coming week and also just kind of what the year looks like for you and, and DJ GJ Stable as far as uh, being on the end of selling some of those horses um, at the upcoming sales. Sure. And, and Acacia, if it's okay with you, I'm going to take the second sure. question first. Sure. Um, it, basically, what we try to do at, at DJ Stable is we're, we're you know, full service in the sense that we have a racing operation um, that uh, is, is the real exciting immediate return um, business. And then we also have a breeding business as well, where we have about 25 or 26 mares, um, whether we own them 100% on our own or, or a couple in partnership. And basically, what we try to do is um, breed for the commercial end of the business and also try to promote our own racing operation by keeping a couple of the horses that uh, come out of our breeding operation to race and campaign on our own. And by having a kind of a foot in both businesses in both camps, it's really given us a lot of flexibility, not only at the sales for selling, but also to uh, hopefully pick up some quality assets as well. I love hearing that kind of angle of things as well. You mentioned the breeding for commercial aspects. Define that a little bit, if you don't mind. Sure. No, no problem at all. So so there's a couple different ways to, to look at the breeding industry. Um, mm-hmm. Number one, you can try to breed to race, which basically means that you're breeding your own stock and you're going to race and campaign your own horses. Um, and you're going to hope that they go on and win grade three, grade two, grade ones. <laughs> um, and then you retire them back into your own um, industry, your own uh, breeding operation itself. And then what most people do in the business is actually breed for the commercial um, venues. And what you're trying to do when you're breeding for the commercial side is you're actually trying to guess um, and handicap what the market is going to be three years from now or mm-hmm. two years from now, because that's how long it takes by the time you decide on what mating you're going to do in 2021. You have to get your mare pregnant. She falls in 2022. Maybe you sell as a weanling in 2022, but more likely you're going to sell in 2023. And you're hoping at that point that uh, you've guessed correctly on which stallions are going to be popular a couple of years from now. It really is so much guesswork when you think about it, too. I love hearing it put that way because the breeding industry, I think, is tough, too, for maybe people that are new into the game because you have to wait a while and and before you even get a chance to have that thrill of racing as well, right? No question about it. It is is a labor of love and you have to be (laughs) immediately, immensely, immensely patient Um, because even if you get the best genetics possible and you hit a home run and you know a couple of years in advance that this mating is going to be extremely commercial, 
you still have mother nature to deal with. And mm -hmm. sometimes the foals aren't correct. Sometimes they have vet issues um, that won't allow them to be sold or that you have to uh, address as, as a young foal. And then you hope that um, it'll, uh, you know, the horse will get better by the time, you know, the yearling sales or the two-year-old sales come along. So there's, there's really a lot against you in the breeding industry to the point where you would say, well, why the hell would anyone be in the breeding industry? <laughs> um, and, and again, we're, we're business people by, by trade. I'm a, a certified financial planner and my father is a CPA. So we really try to take this from a business aspect and treat it as a business. And one of the things that we noticed is that, and you guys talk about it all the time when, you know, um, pre-race is mm -hmm. how much these horses are selling for as weanlings, yearlings, and two-year-olds. And Acacia, what we found was that almost 80% of all horses that go through the ring are worth the most when they leave the ring than they are mm -hmm. in their racing career thereafter. So if you mm -hmm. think about it, four to five horses that go through the sales ring, that's going to be their best day ever. That's going to be when they're worth the most ever. Um, so you would say, well, then I want to breed because if that's when they're going to be worth the most, then I want to have a chance to, to sell um, when they're at their peak. That is an amazing stat and it makes perfect sense, but I think you just never really, you never really think about it uh, at that moment. How many times have we seen a horse sell for six, maybe even seven figures and not make that much back on the racetrack? So it's, it's a tricky proposition as well, but you talked a little bit about trying to guess, trying to think ahead as far as maybe some of the stallions do go or the breeding, the genetics. What are some of the processes or, or, or steps that you take as far as creating a mating or trying to guess what the market may like a couple of years down the road? Right. And, and that, that's a great question. So it used to be when we started started doing this about two decades ago, we used to say, we're going to breed a third to race, a third to proven stallions, and then a third to unknown or new stallions. And what's happened now is that the marketplace is so um, shifted, you mm -hmm. know, currently that they, they don't give you, they don't give new sires really that much of a chance after their first year. So if these stallions don't hit in their first crop, um, they are very, you know, downgraded when it comes mm -hmm. to the marketability of them going forward. Um, and ironically enough, a lot of these older stallions also, the, 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 the true blue stallions that you and I know about, um, you know, whether it's more than ready or mm -hmm. uh, mind shaft or distorted humor, hard spun horses like that, that have been, you know, really good sires for a number of years. All of a sudden, it's a what have you done for me lately industry also for those kind of horses. So it, you really have to shift your focus from, like I said, a third, a third, a third, which was the kind of the golden rule that we did previously to almost where you're breeding 75% of your mares to unproven stallions. Um, and the other 25%, we try to breed to the top of the market, the Uncle Moe's of the world, yeah. the Medaglia, the Oros of the world, um, you know, the, the Nyquist. The, the horses that have proven themselves um, tap it, you know, time and time again. Um, but you can't go too far into that pool because, uh, you know, what's hot right now may not be commercially viable two years from now. So it, it's really a difficult business to be in and try to handicap. Um, we're fortunate that over the years we've we've done a lot of what I call um, evaluating and, and, and culling um, of our program. And that doesn't mean that just because we're selling something that it's a it, it's a bad asset or it's some or mm -hmm. it's a broodmare that can't be commercially viable or anything like that. It's that every year what we do is we look at our overall stock and we say, you know, we're going to put a third of those horses into sales. And sometimes it's the ones that just aren't proving themselves right now. And sometimes it's the top of the market. More recently, it's been the top of the market. We you know we campaigned Eclipse winning Jaywalk and mm -hmm. sold her uh, when her racing career was over. Um, we also sold um, Sower, who was a multiple grade three and grade two placed um, flatter filly. Um, and we sold her when we were done racing. And coming up in, in this February sale, we have a filly named Pocket, um, who ran second in the grade two Jessamine as a two-year-old, ran, ran second to Concrete Rose. And in years past, that would be the kind of filly that we'd want to keep for our program yeah. because she was commercial. But now we're recognizing that again, she may be worth more now 
um, to somebody who wants to take a shot at her than, um, than, than to us where we have other horses that are kind of similar and, and kind of fit that bill. And looking forward to seeing her. She seems to be uh, one that I think will draw quite a bit of attention as I was looking through the catalog. I, I noticed her and was glad that you brought her up. But you also brought up a, a filly that perhaps more people are familiar with in Jaywalk, who was a Breeders' Cup winner, a, a champion, uh, by cross traffic too, who I don't think he was really uh, had really made much of a mark at that point too. I think that he was kind of a, a new and exciting stallion at that time. You're exactly right. You have a good memory. Yeah. Yeah, um, she was she was definitely from cross traffic's first crop yeah and i think that's really the reason why we could afford to buy her as a yearling quite frankly because a lot of people were on the fence about cross traffic and they weren't sure if he was going to make it as a stallion or not um you know it looked like based on his foals that were selling out of that crop that they weren't necessarily going to be early two-year-olds and mm -hmm. that means that a lot of the pinhookers just weren't interested in those kind of horses um so we took advantage of it and bought her, uh, you know, it, it, she still costs, you know, $150,000, $160,000. So it wasn't cheap. Uh, mm -hmm. But that being said, if she was by Tappet or Street Sense or, or, or a proven sire like that, or a freshman sire that people were really gangbusters excited about, we never would have been able to buy her. Um, and then, like you said, we were just fortunate enough to, she won two grade ones for us and won the Eclipse Award. And then we got an offer. Uh, that we couldn't refuse from um, from a contingent in, in Japan, and our partner um, Chuck Zachney from Cassius King and and we sat down and said this is too good of a deal for us not to not to accept, and we sold her, um, and uh, and and then uh, you know moved the money and and started buying more yearlings and started the process all over again. So it's you know hopefully it's a never ending cycle if you if you hit it right. <laughs> People often ask me, what's my favorite part about my job? And the answer is, is that it's never boring. You're always moving on to the next thing. You're always looking for the, the next superstar, the next adventure, whatever it is. And I feel like it, the, the same thing holds true in breeding as well. You said you move the money, you put that right back in. It's not like you, you get a chance to rest on your laurels. No, you really, you really can't because, you know, the the way that the horses are, and you see this on the races all the time, there's, there's an expiration date on them. You just don't mm -hmm. know what, it, when it's going to be. You don't know when their racing career is going to be over, or they're not going to be able to compete at the top, top level anymore. And they need to, um, you know, to find easier spots, whether it's, you know, allowance claiming horses or, or top, you know, mm -hmm. graded state horses. Sometimes, you, you know, at a certain point, they just stop progressing and you need to, to, you know, shift your focus a little bit. So I, I think that you're, if you have the ability to constantly, you know, try to find new inventory and try to replenish your stock, um, that gives you a competitive advantage. And, and, and Acacia, the other thing that we try to do is, you know, we, we used to only go to three or four sales and we would make it a destination site and we would, you know, mark it off on our calendar and we would know that we were always going to the Miami Phasic two-year-old sale, mm -hmm. or we were always going to the Saratoga yearling sale, or we were always going to the, you know, Keeneland November sale. And those year in and year out were, were on our, on our um, calendars. And what we found is that a good horse can come from anywhere. And mm -hmm. you really need to be alert and aware and do your homework at some of the smaller sales like this February phasing sale coming up, because there are almost as many graded stake winners that come out of, you know, percentage wise, that come out of a sale like that, that do some of the larger um, you know, sales at the end of the year. So you really have to be constantly looking for opportunities and constantly, um, you know, getting reports and, and, and seeing if it makes sense to, to buy something or not. You can just easily, you know, do all your homework and due diligence and decide I'm not going to buy anything. And, and that's okay too. I think sometimes that's even more challenging to say, I'm not going to buy anything at a particular sale and say, I'll, I'll pass on this one. There's always kind of that voice in the back of your head, I think, right? It, there really is. And, and you know, we, um, we interviewed Liz Crow the other day on our podcast. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she said, she, she told us a story about how for the September sale, she actually looks at all 4,200 horses in the sale. Mm -hmm. And I think when you do that much homework and that much legwork, um, because we're all human beings, you say, okay, I put in all this time, you know what, maybe I'll bid on that horse that I thought was just okay. Or maybe I'll bid that extra bid on this one because I really like it because you're physically there and you're tired and you're worked hard and you want to come home with inventory. Um, and I think one of the things that COVID has taught me 
from sitting here on a desk in, in New Jersey is that I can kind of remove myself from that emotional part of it. Um, good and bad. But but in this case, it's good because, you know, the, the shortlisters may come back and say, John, you have to buy this horse. It's the best looking yearling I've seen of the sale. And you know what, if it doesn't, if the numbers don't work out for us and we don't feel like that we want to do that extra bid or two, then I can stop. And it's not like, oh, I just wasted three days of, of my own time and, and effort, you know, so therefore I, I should maybe bid the extra one. The nice thing about the sales and the way they have it down to a science is that they do everything in their power to try to encourage you to, to bid that one more time or to, mm -hmm. you know, go back and look at that horse. One, I mean, you know, Phasing and OBS and Keeneland are so good about that, about psychologically. And even when you listen to the bid spotters, you know, you get kind of lulled into, you get seduced into bidding one more time. It's true. And I can say that from personal experience. And I don't know how many people listening to this podcast, I hope several have had the experience of bidding on a horse at a sale. Um, I've gotten to do it a couple of times when I'm shortlisting for Dennis O'Neill. And it's like an adrenaline rush when you're running up and I was bidding, you know, we were bidding against Donato Lani at one point. And it's like your heart is pounding and you want to keep going. So you want to get that horse. And it takes a lot, uh, a lot of determination, a lot of discipline to say, okay, that's it. We're, we're already over what we said we were going to bid on the source. Right. No, exactly. And, and it's amazing. It's so funny. Like you even knew who you were bidding against and it gets personal. It gets really yeah, it personal does. at that point because you can eyeball that person, look across the, you know, the, the sales pavilion and be, and it has nothing to do with the horse at that point anymore. It's all about, <laughs> okay, I'm going to beat you. I'm going to beat you. And then, and then you buy the horse and you go, oh crap, what just happened? I just <laughs> three times more than I thought I would just because I wanted to outbid Donato in this case, you know, but, <laughs> but it is, it, it, it is an adrenaline rush and your heart's beating. And I think other than running in the Kentucky Oaks and, you know, and, and the night of the eclipse awards, that's where, that, that's where my heart pounds the most um, is when wow. you're sitting there and it's the horse you really, really want. And you've done all this legwork and, and, and you're there um, and you get caught up in it. And, and it's mm -hmm. so easy to get caught up in that. I guess a lot of people that are competitive, horse racing is a good sport for them. It sounds like you and I included for many different reasons, not just on the racetrack. Um, we talked a little bit about Jaywalk, and I know she was spectacular, but uh, DJ Stables had four champions that you've campaigned as well. What, maybe it's a champion, maybe it's a not, but what are maybe a horse or multiple horses that really stand out to you or were part of a purchase or a breeding operation that you were part of that were really gratifying to see them on the racetrack? That, that's a, that's a really great question. There's, there's a Philly. So I'm in my office right now in New Jersey mm -hmm. and I have three winter circle pictures up on the wall. And one is Jaywalk, um, you know, in, in the Breeders Cup. One is a Philly named Mo Green. Um, that was from uncle Mo's first crop. Um, who won a grade two for us. And the other one was a, a filly named Do It With Style, who was also a great filly like Jaywalk and was also out of a, uh, was a first crop, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, horse. Um, her, Do It With Style's sire was Pancho Villa. Okay. And that was the very first horse that I went to a sale by myself and was able to buy on my own. Um, and that was back in 88, 89, I think it was. And occasionally, I probably should have stopped there because we bought her for twenty-three thousand dollars. She was she was crooked as 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 ever, and she just had you know a beautiful way of moving. She was from Lady Secrets family, you know, first crop of of Pancho Villa, and we bought her for twenty-three thousand dollars, and she ended up winning the Ashland um, at Keeneland, and uh, and and really, if I'd stopped there, I probably would have saved myself a lot of heartache. <laughs> A lot of heartache, the ups and downs of racing, it really gets you. But I think all the lows of racing, it really makes the wins that much sweeter. They are few and far between when a, a plan seems to all come together. But I think it really makes it that much sweeter when it does, when you when you see that winner's circle photo or that success or that sale top or whatever it may be. No, no question about it. And I think you really have to... I know this wasn't necessarily the, you know, why we started talking about this topic, but you, I think one of the life lessons that, that we've learned 
again, in, in trying to run it like a business. And, and, you know, we say we run it like a business. Obviously, there is an emotional charge, you know, and benefit of it, because like you said, otherwise, why would you be in this crazy business unless unless you derive some enjoyment out of it, and, which we do. Um, but you really have to have one of the business acumen that, that, that we've adopted for our, our racing and our breeding operation is that you have to have a critical mass. You have to have enough horses where if one of them gets sick or hurt or one of them doesn't get pregnant or has a vet issue or whatever it is, you have enough other horses to be able to carry the load. Mm. And it doesn't mean that one person has to go out and buy 12 racehorses and a dozen broodmares. But what it should mean is that they, you know, they should partner together or they should, you know, put money together with others to kind of spread their risk out, you know, amongst enough of an inventory where you have a fighting chance. So if not all your mares get pregnant, it's okay. And if you don't guess right on, you know, which uh, horses are going to be commercial in a couple of years, it's okay. And if a horse gets sick or God forbid something worse happens to it, you have enough other ones to kind of carry the, the water um, and carry the expenses for the other ones. And, and if, if people who are listening to this, if they leave with nothing else, they don't remember anything else that I say, it's that you have to be able to spread your risk out almost like a mutual fund. We use that term all the time of it's a mutual fund of, of horses um, because you don't know which one when you buy yearlings or buy two year olds, you don't know which one is going to be the superstar, if any of them. All you care about is that one of them gets to be the superstar. And then it doesn't matter what the other ones really do at that point. That all makes up for it at that point, for sure. And I loved that you perfectly dovetailed into my next question. It's great when you have a fellow podcaster and somebody that speaks. <laughs> it really makes my job a lot easier. But you talked about partnering up and spreading the risk around. Um, you mentioned Chuck Zachney a little bit earlier on. As, um, you've partnered up with a lot of uh, horses with him. Tell me a little bit about that partnership and particularly, I think, his history in Maryland as I always see you guys very active at the Maryland sales or, or horses around that area, that neck of the woods as well. No question about it. And, and we've been very fortunate over the years to have a lot of great partners. Um, but I can I can say with all sincerity that I've enjoyed personally, I've enjoyed my time with Chuck, mm -hmm. um, you know, as much, if not more than any other partner that we've had, just because we get along so well as 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 human beings and as, and as friends. And, you know, the, like you said before, the business is so tough that you have to have somebody you can commiserate with. And, and that means, you know, kind of, you need a shoulder to cry on when things don't go well, and you need somebody to celebrate with when things do go well. So Chuck has been that person for us. And it doesn't, doesn't hurt that he's also, you know, been partners with us on a champion and a couple other major horses like right. King, who was a multiple graded stake winner and others. Um, so we've had a lot of good times with, with Chuck, but you know, he's also absorbed a lot of bad times with us too. And I think you have to have that kind of mindset where, um, you respect who your partner is and what they bring to the table and what their experiences have been and, and their insight. And they reciprocate and also have the same kind of genuine interest and respect for you. Um, and, and I think over the years, that's, that's been a winning combination for us um, with, you know, with Cash as King. And then, um, Acacia, we recently just went to the Keeneland November sale and, mm -hmm. um, and, and actually partnered up with Terry Finley and, and um, West Point Thoroughbreds on, um, on a colt named uh, Turned Aside, who was, we bought out of the, uh, out of the Paul Pampa um, uh, dispersal. And uh, that horse is going to actually run next week in, at the fairgrounds in the Colonel Power. Fantastic. Best of yeah. luck. That's exciting. So thank you. Thank you. And, and it's interesting because we were interested in the horse and knew we couldn't afford him on our own. Mm -hmm. And, um, and Terry, um, is actually a client of my dad's and, and they've been friends for a number of years. So when actually Terry brought the horse up to us, um, we said, you know what, this is interesting because we can't do it on our own. So we'd be willing to buy a piece of, of the horse if, if they, if they ended up doing it. And it's not dissimilar to, you know, what China horse and Windstar have done mm -hmm. and, and, and other big operations have done. They say, why, you know, rather than us, you know, beat each other up at the sale and, and overpay for a horse. Why don't we partner together and, and, and buy it for less. And even though, yeah, we're going to own a smaller percentage of it than if we owned hundred percent on our own, we at least have the opportunity to buy the horse together. Um, so that that's, you know, we're, we're just watching patterns and the way some of these groups are getting together 
Um, and instead of making the sellers rich, they're actually uh, taking a real strategic um, shot at, at being partners together. I think we've seen such a big trend in recent years of that. You mentioned China Horse Club and Winstar. You see Spendthrift partnering with various other operations on a single horse to spend maybe a little bit more on one horse and these two kind of mega groups partnering up together. And even at the smaller level as well, it almost feels like that really is kind of the future, so to speak, in finding partners. And it all goes back, I think, to what you talked about in kind of spreading that risk out. No question about it. And and I think you probably see it more on the on the racing side, where mm-hmm. how many times do you go through the program, whether it's a claiming race or all the way up to you know the, the top, you know, the, the Pegasus for that matter, and yeah. you're going through and you're looking at connections and it's not just one owner anymore. It's it's a multiple yeah. of owners. It's a part it's a bunch of partnerships. I mean, the, the day and age of us campaigning on the majority of our horses on our own just isn't isn't in the cards anymore because you're you're playing with people who have such deeper pockets and now that they've partnered mm-hmm. together um you almost need to find a dance partner otherwise you're going to be left out outside and i think it makes it fun at the races too when you have other people to celebrate with so that's a nice little positive as well no question about it and and i'm actually hoping just to spin back to the phasic sale coming up i'm hoping yeah. that some of these big partnerships are going to want to buy one of the other mares that we have in there so that'll be good too Well, I'm glad you circled back to that. Selling seven, we mentioned Paquette a little bit. Are there other horses that you think um, may get some attention there that you're looking forward to seeing sell this coming week? No question about it. Um, You know, we we are selling some horses that in in previous years we may have kept to be broodmare prospects for us. Um, But but what we're seeing is that the fillies that come off the racetrack, especially well-bred fillies, um, there's a real appetite for in in Kentucky and a lot of the commercial breeding operations. So we're looking at it as a way to maximize our opportunities. So we have um, Paquette, like I said, who finished second in a grade two. We have two Bernardini uh, fillies that are coming off the racetrack. So Jaded, um, who is uh, whose mare is a, is a half the Jewel Princess. Um, mm-hmm. And then uh, one of our other partnership horses, 50 Shays of Green, um, named after our, our partner, Sean Shay. And she actually is a black type um, Bernardini filly who uh, whose claim to fame is she ran third to Harvey's Little Goyle and Water White um, in the Busanda. So two two really really top top horses. Yeah. Um, so so Fifty Shades of Green is also going to be in the supplement of of the Phasic Sale. And then we have a, a Tappet filly named City Tap um, who who got hurt after her first start. But she's out of a Galileo mare who's already produced a grade two placed horse. And the second dam is the dam of perfect soul. So I, I think that it's wow. it's deep pedigrees that we're looking at um, in this sale. And and it used to be a case where we would put horses like this in the November sale or in the January sale. Mm-hmm. And we again, we, we kind of analyzed it and we realized that we wanted our horses, regardless of what of, of, of which horse it is we want it to be in the upper third of whatever day it's going to sell. So that might mean that a horse, like if we had a American Pharaoh Colt or a Medaglia Philly, they would be in book one of September because they would be in the upper, you know, based on their looks and their pedigree, they would be in the upper third um, all the way to, Hey, sometimes we don't hit the, the home run commercially and it's from a good solid family and the horse looks good, but we need to put it in book five of the September sale, or we need to put it in a regional sale because we want it to be in the upper third, because we found that that's where the money, the money chases the top end of the market, almost irrespective of which sale it is. So we took a couple of these fillies that normally would be in earlier sales, and we decided to bring them to February and basically said to TaylorMade, we're going to put these half a dozen or so fillies in the sale, um, and you're probably going to be the leading, hopefully you'll be the leading consigner, but, <laughs> but if you can get other horses of that caliber to your you know, to your consignment as well, then it's going to be a win-win for everybody. And to their credit, they did. They 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 worked their books and they got a lot of horses, um, top horses for the sale in the uh, you know at the very end in the supplement. And I I predict that they're going to be the leading leading uh, consigners at the basic sale. 
I like it. Something to look for as well. And, and I loved hearing that angle of wanting to be the top of whatever book it is that your your horse is entered in. You mentioned a Galileo influence, though, in one of the fillies that you had. And you had said to me that um, hopefully COVID allowing with some travel plans coming up this year, you want to be more involved in some of the European sales as well. And I won't take up too much of your time, but I did want to ask you, your thoughts, because I uh, spoke to it, uh, spoke about it a little bit last week with the first Tattersall sale of the year coming up. Um, what are your thoughts on some of the influences that we've seen with the European sales, with European bloodstock coming over to race here in America? You know, when I started doing the podcast, I had to focus more on races that were going on outside of of our, you know, of our racing circuit out, out outside of New York and New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And what I realized is that. The European influences, the horses that are coming from overseas to run here are just about dominating the yeah. races that they're in. And um, if you look at the Breeders' Cup races, you know, that were that were run in November and you look at the turf races, of course, you know, because they're going to have more of an influence in those races. But they basically hit the board, if not swept the board in every single turf race, whether it was a sprint race, you know, a juvenile race or, or the marathon and everything in between. And that's just one example. Peter Brandt's been doing it for years. Mm-hmm. Um, Pete Bradley's been doing it for years. Um, Klarovich has been doing it for years. And it used to be where if you had a horse from Europe that came you know, to the United States, it's because they failed as a turf horse and people were trying to make it as a dirt horse. And the, the script has flipped completely where those outfits are starting to go and aggressively pursue top fillies um, to bring to the United States. And we actually did the same. We bought a filly named Earth Strike, who is, um, who is a, a Zophany filly that Joseph O'Brien was training and she won first time out. And we aggressively pursued her and bought her and brought her over to the States. And she just actually ran second um, yesterday at the fairgrounds in the allowance race. And we have very high expectations for her. Um, for whatever reason, their training programs there um, just seem to beget tremendous athletes and sound horses. And I think that that's one of the problems that we have here is that our horses, not just because of inbreeding, but also because of the way that we train them. It's so, Mm -hmm. in my, in my estimation, it's so backwards compared to the way that horses, you know, were born and bred to, Mm -hmm. to to run. Um, I mean, you know, because you were, you were, you know, in a different aspect of, of, of riding horses, but horses need to be out and about. And unfortunately, I'm going to get on a soapbox, but unfortunately, here, please do. <laughs> we, we keep the horses, you know, enclosed for, for 22 hours a day, you know, and, and that's not the best way for them to, to get, you know, out and about and, 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 you know, keep sound and keep their muscle tone and everything. So it, it, it's just amazed. It amazed me um, the way that Joseph O'Brien, for example, trains his horses every day. They do two mile or three mile gallops mm-hmm. um, up and down hills. They're, you know, they're, when, when they're not in, you know, when they're not training, um, they're being hand walked and grazed. And, and it's a different, I know it's a different setup and a different world there, but I really think that's part of the reason why those horses can come here and quite frankly, eat our lunch in a lot of these races. And we, we saw it on full display in the Breeders' Cup and I, I, it's been such a fascinating trend to me to follow seeing those European fillies in particular coming over here to the U.S. And best of luck with with uh, with your filly and a nice second yesterday. Congratulations. Wishing all the best there. And finally, John, I wanted to ask you just one quick question about the TDN Writers Room because you have some fantastic guests on there uh, all the time and, and I got a chance to uh, listen to your interview with Bliss Crow, which as expected was fabulous. Tell me a little bit about the TDN Writers Room and what it has been like in, in building that up. Well, I, I really appreciate you asking about that because it, it is mm-hmm. it is a pet project of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been fortunate to be, you know, a part of it almost since day one. Um, Sue Finley, who, um, you know, who runs and, and owns uh, the TDN, um, came up with the idea. And Sue and I actually live in the same town. And we've talked about horses before in the past. And they interviewed me for after one of our horses, I think it was Proven Strategies after he won a big race. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my background is in journalism. So she asked me if I would be willing to, to be a part of it. And it's just been so much fun 
um, every week, you know, uh, whether, you know, depending on who's on it with us, whether, you know, whether it's uh, uh, Bill Finley or, or, you know, or Joe or Brian Donato, it, it's just been so much fun because we get to talk about horses, which we all love. And we have very different um, thought processes and, and we look at it through different lenses. Um, Joe is much more of a gambler. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, the owner and, and, you know, and can talk a little bit more about the business. And then Bill is the, the intrepid reporter. Um, and he's got so many great stories and, and yeah. insight. Um, and, and the best part about Bill is that he'll call you out on stuff. You know, you, you can't, you can't just kind of speak <laughs> through, you really have to know your stuff. Um, and, and it's, it's become a fun internal contest for the three of us. I think we all do a lot of work on it, um, in, in the pre-show just because we want to one up you know, our, our fellow uh, podcasters. So it's been great. We really love it. Um, I think we're up to like 25,000 people every week that listen to it. And we've gotten emails and, and texts and direct messages from literally all over the world. Um, not only telling us, hey, great job, but also, hey, you really screwed up and forgot about XYZ. <laughs> and you know what? They're right. You know, so it, it's great when you get that kind of feedback. And, and Acacia, I'm sure that, that, you know, you guys with, with this podcast are going to be enjoying the same kind of success. Um, and, and I really hope you do because it is one of the most fun things that I do on a, on a day-to-day basis. I, I love doing the podcast. I have really enjoyed doing mine so far. And thank you for the, those kind words. It really means a lot. It's a, I think a topic and the sales and the pedigrees and the breeding side of things that we don't really talk about, I think enough, um, even for some people within the industry. So I'm looking forward to continuing to delve a little bit deeper. And I loved getting to hear everything you had to say today, John. Thank you so much for taking the time. I hope to have you on again sometime soon and best of luck with the sale coming up. Well, I, I can't thank you enough. It's really enjoyable. And, and I'm glad that I got in on, on the ground floor with, with, with you guys as well, because you're going to be skyrocketing soon. And, and this is just thank a you. great topic to go into um, the sales. And, and hopefully, you know, from our conversation, it'll, it'll get more people to be involved and just come out to a sale. Even if you don't think about buying something or selling something, it is, it is worth the price of admission. It, it is an entertaining uh, event every day. You kind of see, you know, behind, behind the scenes of, what goes on so that way when the horses get to the races you have a better understanding of of uh of basically you know how sausage was made you get to see what goes on so <laughs> it's really enjoyable but but kudos to you guys for doing this podcast and uh, thanks Thank for you. having me on i look forward to hopefully being on again absolutely thanks so much Excited to welcome in now a very familiar voice, the one and only Larry Colmes, voice of the Triple Crown of the Breeders' Cup, and also now can be seen and heard on the stands at the Phasic Tipton sales, getting ready for the Kentucky Winter Mix sale coming up, and happy to welcome in Larry. Thanks for joining me today. Hey, Acacia. I'm glad to be along with you, and um, here in Lexington right now, it's a little little chilly, about 23 <laughs> degrees here, probably slightly warmer at Gulfstream where you are. It's a little bit warm and muggy today, but I will stop complaining about that when I hear 23 degrees in Kentucky. Um, yeah, so stay warm this week, uh, but getting ready for, for the sale coming up on February 8th and 9th. And you joined the Phasic Tipton team for the Timonium sale back in 2020. Uh, tell me a little bit, if you will, Larry, um, how this came about and, and what it's been like for somebody that's been in the industry for a while, kind of trying out something new like this. Well, uh, you know, obviously for uh, the last several years, I wouldn't have any time to have done something like this because I was, mm -hmm. uh, you know, working for Naira and uh, working for NBC and just a very busy schedule. And, and now that uh, I have a little more time on my hands, uh, one of the fellows from Facing Tipton, who is a, an old friend of mine, Bain Welker, he's the mm -hmm. vice president of Facing Tipton. And he and I worked together at Birmingham Turf Club in Alabama back in 1987. He said, you want to come and do some sales for us? And I'm like, sure. You know, uh, the longtime sales announcer, Terrence Collier, uh, kind of a legend in the industry, he uh, he retired. So they had an opening. And and uh, so uh, appropriately enough, the first place I ever watched a horse race as a kid, Timonium, was the first place I worked the, for the sale for Facing Tipton last summer. And I love Timonium. I think it is such a cool little track and, and a fun place for the sale. And you're from Maryland. That's where you grew up. And I had read, which I thought was amazing, too, that your dad actually installed the sound system at Timonium. Yeah, he did. He was the uh, he installed the sound system 
at not only the track, but all the fairgrounds and the facing Tippin Pavilion where we do the sales. So, <laughs> so the original, uh, I don't know if the original equipment is still around, but he, he put it in uh, years and years ago. And, uh, and now I get to use it uh, as, uh, as an announcer. That's pretty special for sure. And yeah, Timonium's a fun place and haven't gotten to go there when racing is happening and the Ferris wheel is set up and things like that. But watching it on TV is always fun. And I do love the area and you being from the Mid-Atlantic. Was that special and getting a chance to kind of try out a new adventure with everything coming full circle like that? It was. It was kind of uh, kind of neat just to uh, to start there. And, and I had some comfort level just because I had been in that facility so many times as a, as a kid. And, and, uh, you know, I, I felt like I, I was a, a little bit more comfortable than you would normally be first time, uh, doing a new thing, but I was still, still a little bit nervous because despite the fact that, you know, I've called horse races for 20 million people. Any, anytime you do something new, uh, you, you get a little bit, uh, on the nervous side. And, and I guess, uh, I still am because it's still new to me. And there can be a lot of pressure associated with it, too. I think people may not realize how important the job of, of an announcer at the sales really is and as far as reading the pedigrees and sharing information about the horse in order to get the horse to that level of bids that the sales company is looking for. Yeah, it, it is a completely different thing for me. And uh, it, it's been something that is a process when you know when I first started I, I had to write out everything that I wanted to say mm -hmm. but you still have to be ready because you know the, in the middle of the auction the auctioneer might take a break and say hey Larry tell us a little about more about this horse and mm -hmm. you know that's something that I, I'm still a little bit you know new to and uh, there there's just a lot of preparation I, I I do more preparation for these sales than I do for calling the Kentucky Derby it's just, <laughs> there's there's so many horses that and you want to you want to give all the pluses in their pedigrees and any reason for people to to want to buy the horse and and for some of the some of the guys there like Jesse Ullery, who's uh, like our, mm -hmm. our number one sales announcer guy it's all second nature to those guys he and Grant Williamson and, and Reed Ringler for me it's like I'm the new guy and I'm constantly I'm full of questions uh, you know what do what what do I have to say what do I want to avoid saying and things like that. And, and they've been, especially Jesse has been an absolutely humongous help. And uh, you know, the people at Facing Tipton are just the nicest people from Boyd Browning down. They're just a, a great bunch. I love hearing kind of that, preparation side of things because in so many things in racing you'd think especially calling the Kentucky Derby when there's 20 horses there's obviously a lot of prep that goes into that but I'd imagine now with all of the years that you've been doing it calling races was it kind of refreshing coming back to that and saying okay I, I know what I'm doing here this is easy after trying out the sales yeah <laughs> you know you, you go back like I went back to Del Mar and, and called the races and it was like yeah. okay you know, I, I still can do this. Everything, everything <laughs> cool. It's, it's really second nature to me, but you, you still have to be prepared uh, for, mm -hmm. for calling races, no matter what, you know, there's still mm -hmm. a lot of work to be done, but uh, for sales, for me, there's, there's more work to be done because it, it I don't, I don't know if uh, it'll ever be second nature for me, but maybe it'll get easier and easier as I, as I go along. You talked about the preparation. Tell me a little bit, if you will, what kind of that preparation entails, because we see the sales catalog, you see the pedigrees. What are some of the things that maybe you're zeroing in on a little bit more? Well, as far as the pedigrees go, uh, you know, you want to talk about anything positive, anything mm -hmm. that's important, a reason for them to buy the horse. So you're looking at, you know, who the who the siblings are and deep into the pedigree, you know, any any big names that you see in there. And uh, you, you just want to get all the information out. The other thing that I'm still learning is the sales that I have worked so far, I've sold weanlings, yearlings, and two-year-olds. And mm -hmm. this sale, we have broodmares. I've never done that before. So I, I need to learn that terminology. Uh, you know, what's important as far as not only the dam's pedigree, but her pedigree to the sire that she is pregnant to. You know, and, and uh, there's there's just a, a lot of new things, but uh, you know, some some are off the page obvious. We've got a we've got one of the uh, horses that we're selling a broodmare who uh, the second dam is Tussaud, who is probably the the greatest broodmare of all time. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the dam of 
of Empire Maker and, and Honest Lady, who's gone on to be the dam of grade one winners. And, you know, Tussauds famous as a broodmare. So it, it, it's great to see them and, and, you know, have that just come right off the page. But some of them you, you got to look a little harder into and, and <laughs> come up with some nuggets. And that's what uh, that's where the preparation comes in. Have you enjoyed kind of covering the different ages as far as the sales? And you mentioned the weanlings, the two-year-olds, um, maybe seeing some horses in the pedigree or, or now as we're getting ready for some of those broodmares, horses themselves that you've called on the racetrack, have they brought back kind of any fun memories? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I've I've had a chance to auction off a few American pharaohs and, yeah. and that was exciting. And, uh, and at the recent weanling sale, I, I think I had a, a justifier too. So that was that was fun too to have uh, to have seen the offspring of these triple crown winners. I've had the, the chance to call uh, in my career, so that that part is is pretty neat. And occasionally you get to see horses that you know are, are out of mares that you've called, and you know there, there's I've, I've called so many races. There's a chance that there's a bunch of them in the in the pedigrees that I'm familiar with, having seen uh, on the track live. Have there been any horses uh, coming up in this Phasic Tipton winter mix sale this week that you're excited to see on the stand? Yeah, I was. I've been mostly looking at the ones that I'm selling just because there's so mm-hmm. so many. We, we we work in shifts, so like I know I'm from hip number one twenty one to one sixty, and then again two forty something to two eighty, and uh, so I've been concentrating on them. But yeah, I mean, like like I said, the the two so. Uh, in the mm-hmm. pedigree, uh, something like that. And there's another one I saw who's a uh, half to uh, mine that bird in Gullahan, mm-hmm. you know, so it's it's neat to see uh, big names like that in, in pedigrees. And, and anytime uh, you see a really familiar name and a big name, it uh, it does get you a little bit more excited when you're talking about it. On this episode earlier on, I I spoke to Jonathan Green of DJ Stables, and we were talking about the electricity in the sales ring. When For us, we were talking about being on the end of bidding on a horse, but I'm curious what it's like being up on the stand. Do you feel kind of that adrenaline rush? What is it like there in the atmosphere at the sales? Well, when when they go over seven figures and and you you hear that little you know the the applause coming from all over the place, it, it gets pretty exciting. The the most excited I think I was was not on the stand itself, but just in the audience because I, I wasn't uh, I had worked earlier at the November sale uh, and and my shift was over and I I I just got to sit back and and watch Monomoy Girl and Midnight mm. Bizu and and uh, rushing fall and uni sell and i'm like oh my god this is crazy you know and, and watching the bids get to nine million dollars and i'm like this is this is just fun and and, and you know your, your your hair on your on your forearms raises up you know when, when those numbers get up that high it's just a just a lot of excitement uh in that ring and I, i've never been on the bidding end of it but uh, that's got to be both exciting and <laughs> and a little bit crazy you know <laughs> you know a lot of people are on the phone okay you want to go to the next you know you want to keep going you want to keep going you know? so it's 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 fun to watch and and i'm still i'm still learning like you know watching people bid you know i don't i don't see it as much you know the auctioneers obviously see it and the bid spotters see it but some of those guys have this really low key way of bidding mm-hmm. and and i'm still like okay who's bidding and i'm looking around i'm, I'm just like a little kid in the candy store trying to figure it all out that's one of my favorite things to do in the sales ring, actually, is is especially if you're not bidding on that horse. If you are bidding, then you're pretty focused. But my favorite thing is to kind of look around and try to figure out who's bidding. And sometimes you can see the eye contact of the bid spotters and where they're going. But you're so right. Some guys are just so subtle about it, the movement of their pen or touching their glasses or maybe somebody on the phone, as you mentioned. But it, it moves quickly there in the sales ring, too. It does. And, and the... Uh... You know the bid spotters are so good, and and you know this day and age, you you not only have the people that are that are there in the you know in the audience right in front mm-hmm. of you, you've got people in the back that are bidding, you have people on the phone that are bidding, you got people on the internet that are bidding, and the you know the auctioneer's got to got to watch all that stuff, and we got a little sign that says internet internet bid, and occasionally you just hit the auctioneer on the arm to say, Hey, we got a bid online. You know, mm. there's, there's so much, uh, you know, you're working right next to them and you're kind of helping each other. And uh, it's, it's fun to work with them too. The, the auctioneers, I'm amazed at what they do. And uh, 
it's neat sitting next to them and, and watching the show and they're all they all have their different styles and their different cadences mm -hmm. and it's it's neat all the different pieces to make one big show go on. And, and it really is a, a well-oiled machine over at Phasic Tipton as well. Um, and I know you haven't worked for the company as long, but have you kind of kept notes of horses that you've gotten to be on the stand that have sold that you may be able to call down the road, particularly being track announcer at Del Mar, all the two-year-old races coming up? Are you kind of keeping notes and, and looking for some of the horses that you saw go through the sales ring? Not not a whole lot yet, uh, mm -hmm. but uh, I, I certainly if I if I see uh, you know FT in the in the past performances and mm -hmm. in, the, in the the sales information, I'll, I'll take a look back. I'm like, oh yeah, I was on the stand for that one. That's that's pretty cool. I, I'm definitely uh, something to look forward to. So uh, don't know if I'm going to be calling it Delmar this summer yet. By the way, that uh, Trevor Denman is still officially the voice of Delmar, and we're waiting on his decision as you know what to do uh, this summer, but. Uh, I'm sitting in the bullpen waiting in case he doesn't want to do it. <laughs> well, it was fun hearing you call at uh, at Del Mar where the turf meets the surf, a, a beautiful track as well. And uh, I wanted to circle back to Maryland because I had seen a tweet that you posted just a couple of days ago, and I wanted to ask you about this. I know it's not related to the sales, but I think it's a cool story. With Larry King passing away recently and – I saw you had posted that getting ready to call up in the in the press box at Laurel Park and Larry King was there and would often uh, offer some encouragement. Tell me a little bit about that and, and what he was like. Yeah, so the press box at Laurel, uh, they found a little room for me in the, the front of the press box. Eddie McMullen was the name of the the fellow that ran the press box and, and I kind of worked as a gopher for him and, and uh, practiced calling races as much as I could. So uh, where Larry King would be a, a, a frequent visitor. He was a friend of Andy Beyer and, and mm -hmm. Clem Florio from the Washington Post. And, and so he would come and, and bet on the horses. And where he sat was pretty much, you know, just feet away from where I would practice my calls. You know, so he would, uh, you know, he would listen and say, ah, you're sounding pretty good, kid, you know, and, and, uh, <laughs> and giving me, uh, you know, little uh little encouragement now and again he d he didn't have much to say as far as uh you know things i should work on or anything like that because that wasn't his specialty but uh but it was it was neat to to have someone like him right there listening to you call races at age 18 uh and uh you know as it, as it turns out uh, he was he was there quite a bit we, we used to get some pretty good visitors up there but larry was certainly one of the one of the bigger names did that make you nervous having him sit right there no, nah, I didn't really get too nervous uh, thinking yeah. about it uh, at the time because I I was too busy concentrating on being nervous, <laughs> just calling the calling the races, you know. Because pretty much, even though you're calling to yourself, it's it's still a little bit uh, crazy at that at that level when you when you're just starting and the and you're trying not to run as fast as the horses are with your mouth, you know. You sort of uh, eventually figure out how to, how to do that, but. Uh, in in the early stages, uh, it's it's a little a uh, little wacky and and uh, and uh, brain racking. At that time, did you ever think you would have the opportunity opportunity to call two triple crowns? <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I just wanted to call races. You know, that was my thing. That I, I I didn't know where it would be or or where I would end up. I I just wanted to do it. I I knew that was uh, my goal, my my future. I was hoping it would work and. And it did well, well past, uh, you know, I thought it would ever be. And I'm so happy about that. And, and you know, I'm not done yet. I'm, I'm only mm -hmm. 54. So hopefully I got a lot more to go. <laughs> and hopefully another triple crown to call. That would be that would be pretty fun. It would be. Yeah, I, I do. I, I wouldn't mind doing another one. <laughs> First two was kind of fun. I can imagine. Well, Larry, always a joy to talk to you and thank you for taking the time. Best of luck on the stand this coming week. We'll be sure to look out for you and uh, be sure to listen for you in all the great races coming up. Sounds good, Acacia. Uh, my pleasure being on with you as always. Pleased to be joined now by Rich Averill of Averill Racing, talking about a very special mare, Ladies Island, who just had her last start for the Connections and made it a winning one in the Austin Turf Ladies Turf Sprint, but entered in the phase of Tipton Winter Mix Sale coming up. Rich, thanks for joining me today. Excited to talk about your girl this afternoon. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it was a, it was a, 
bittersweet ending for her, you know, yesterday, turf, then not turf. And, you know, I was, uh, when she went on the dirt, I was very confident. So I was happy to see it. Uh, the, the gods let the rain come down. <laughs> The racing gods can be pretty fickle. You never know what they're going to do. But uh, yesterday, as we're recording this Sunday morning, um, yesterday on Saturday, the ladies' turf sprint came off the turf, but she won on the turf before and, and done so pretty impressively. I mean, talk about how versatile this mare is. Yeah, I mean, she's versatile. You know, it's when you have speed, then you know mm -hmm. that makes you versatile. That's your that's your weapon. You know, speed is is the weapon. For her, so the way Gulfstream has been, you know, playing, it's you know, the turf has been really, really, really fast, and so I think there's been a big bias, you know, as far as speed. So when it started raining yesterday, I was like, oh god, here we go! Like they're gonna leave it on the turf. There's no way they're gonna take all these stakes off the race and or all these stakes off the turf. And then you know, when they did, you know, it was great. I just didn't want it to be like you know wet and soft because then you know it, it just would have been a bad would have been a bad deal so when they absolutely when they took it off you know that was just like this is awesome and then you know she loves the slop and so it, it was a uh, you know it really it worked out you know i'm glad it worked out in my favor uh, it certainly did. And she's a multiple graded stakes winner to her last start in December. Also at Gulfstream was her defending her title in the grade three sugar swirl. And let's go back to the start with her and where you found her. Because you claimed her for $16,000 back in June of 2018. And you just had a tremendous run with her and your partner, Matisse, right? Yeah, I, had, uh, I saw her at Tampa run her first race ever. And I was there at the races. I'm like, Jesus, like, you know, this, you know, this, this is a nice horse. And then, uh, you know, I, I, I wasn't around when she ran back. She was in for 25,000, I believe that time. Then mm -hmm. I wasn't around when she was in the next time. And then it just kind of, uh, it just kind of, she ran like she went up to Delaware and this and that. And she came back at Tampa and it kind of like refreshed my memory. I was like, Oh, that's that Philly. And, uh, so like they didn't really run her that that meet back for a claim, and then um, with that trainer for whatever reason that went to Gallstream, mm -hmm. and it was a starter optional claim. You had to start for like ten thousand or less, and then or then you know or you could be a sixteen claimer. And I called Duke up um, with Matisse, and I'm like, listen, <laughs> I'm claiming this filly. You're in. I don't care. Like whatever. <laughs> And uh, so I just, you know, we had money in the account and I claimed it. And, you know, the rest is history. And she's just, uh, and I remember, and I honestly, um, you know, when we got the horse and, you know, she was training and she was getting up to that point and they said, they, you know, they're like, she's going to be better than paying price. And I'm like, you're smoking crack. There's no way. And I'm like, she's like, I'm telling you, she's going to be better than paying price. And this was, you know, when paying price was rolling. And, uh, and I guess they, I guess they're, probably were right <laughs> yeah she's done some great things on the racetrack mentioned two-time win in the grade three sugar swirl she was beaten just by three quarters of a length setting the pace up at saratoga in the grade two honorable miss i mean what was that like too seeing this filly that you had claimed and she was really really tough up there in saratoga in a grade two yeah i mean that was uh you know i was there obviously you know, you know she uh she likes that. She likes that that course. You know, some horses don't like that course. Uh, you know, that that the horse can be what they call the graveyard of favorites. So that horse, that course can be tough. And uh, you know, we knew she liked it because she won the year before. So you know, we came in you know fairly confident. And uh, you know, Lascano rides her. I think he rides her as good as anybody. I mean, he just he like he lets her roll, and she, I mean, she just went rolling on there. And um, you know, it, that was a tough beat. You know, that was that was a really really tough beat. I mean, she uh, she ran huge. She ran huge that day. So uh, you know, I mean, obviously, I, I don't. I, you know, I don't ship a lot. Um, we kind of stay in Florida. Um, so when we ship, you know, we you know we like our chances. And uh, you know, because we don't have like we're not a big operation. You know, it's, Georgina gets on them themselves, and you know, she doesn't. You know, she, she sometimes you know she has to go or she doesn't. But it. it it, you know it's it's tough for us to you know just pick up and go so when we go somewhere it's you know you know we like our chances 
big effort there. She came back down to Florida in December, won the grade three sugar swirl as mentioned. And you, you talked about your trainer, Georgina Baxter, and mentioned one of your other sprint stars and pay any of price. And I mean, anybody that's been there in the mornings at Gulfstream has probably seen Georgina aboard pay any price, full length of leg, you know, working him because he's, he's a tough horse to work. And she does the same. She's really, really hands on. Tell me a little bit about your relationship with Georgina. You know, Georgina's, you know, she's good. She, um, she's, it, she's very passionate about what she does. Um, she really, really enjoys her job um, and she cares a lot. So it's, it's good to have, you know, someone like that in the barn, you know, not everybody cares about their job. I mean, she, she loves the animals. I mean, you know, she probably didn't go to work today because, you know, ladies Island is not there. You know, She's, it's it's just she you know it, it's gonna it, it affects her you know I mean she probably cares too much you know, I mean, which is you know which is you know not probably not you know not uh, you know not to be mean or anything but she probably cares too much so um, she just she really is hands on you know it, we have a good team you know she 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 lets me know when they're ready and uh, you know she, she gets on them personally most of them and. You know, it works out, you know, I mean, it's uh, she's been, in, you know, in the, in the system with me for a long time. And, you know, she's uh, she's good at what she does. You know, she she gets them ready and she gets them to where they you know need to be. And it's like, hey, Rich, let's look for a race. And then uh, and I look for a race. And, you know, I, I just I put them where where I think I can win. You know, I like to win. And there we go. And uh, when Ladies Island did, she will uh, head to the sale, 35 starts, 18 victories, which is pretty impressive. When you claimed her back in 2018, did you ever think you'd end up with a mare like this? No. Like, <laughs> like I said, uh, when when they told me that, you know, I, you know, I think she could be better than paying a price. I honestly, I, my words, exact words were like, you're on crack. Like, <laughs> I mean, there's just no way. Like, just, it's just not possible. I mean, you know, Payne Price is one of a kind. He's, you know, world record holder, five for one. I mean, so, um, you know, was she better than him? Eh, I don't know. I mean, he's, you know, he's pretty special. Uh, but in the long run, it's like financially and like with everything and her being, a, you know, a mare and, you know, and selling and, you know, yeah, pro you know, probably, pro pro probably so. So, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't envision it. No, not, not, you, you never do that. I mean, you claim one for 16 and you're like, I mean, I'm probably trying to win like a Florida bread allowance. You know what I mean? Like that's, you know, I mean, she didn't even win the day we claimed her. So. <laughs> and she finished third the day you claimed her at five and a half furlongs and came right back uh, for 30,000. Won that day. You got away with it. And uh, she was never in one of those kind of lower level claiming races again after that. It was pretty much all um, allowance or stakes races up until her last race on Saturday at Gulfstream, where um, she did go out a winner. She's heading to the sale with that last victory, a multiple graded stakes wins. Have you heard any kind of buzz about her heading into the sale and, and how do you think that she will be received given her resume well i mean there's not a whole lot of buzz just because her pedigree is not i mean it's not the, it's not the best that's actually i mean to be perfectly blunt it's awful <laughs> uh, you know she's by greatness who uh you know I, I i i don't know for a fact but i mean i pretty much to give that stud fee away um and and her you know her mom her mom's mom her mom's mom's mom like there it's all there's no black type anywhere so it's a pretty ugly pedigree but um for me when i go to the sales i'm not like one of these you know big guys big guns that go and buy you know really expensive horses you know i buy the athlete, you know, I'll buy the individual. And I've always said, I'll create my own pedigree. So I rather have the athlete that I can, you know, make a pedigree out of that looks, you know, looks the part and everything else, rather than something that might not be, you know, is good with, you know, unbelievable pedigree. So I, I rather have the other way. And I'm very few far between of other people i don't i'm different than everyone else everyone else wants the royally bred this and the royally bred that and you know whatever and but uh so her she's enormous i mean she is monstrous i mean she's beautiful she's 
she looks like a whole life she doesn't look like a sprinter like so um people aren't really going out so that's probably going to hurt her but if they actually go out and they look at her and they see her they have to fall in love with her you know they have to because she is just gorgeous and just big and i mean i don't there's not a doubt in my mind she's going to be an awesome brood there yeah, she, I always would, uh, would joke with Georgina with this. You're absolutely right. You would never look at her and say, oh, wow, she looks like a sprinter. She looks like she wants to go a mile and an eighth, two turns around, if not more. Big, big merit. And, and she really is awesome, has a lot of heart, too. Um, I'm sure bittersweet for you as she heads off to the sale, pay any price you mentioned earlier. He was retired uh, as not able to race at the age of 11 at Gulfstream and, and what a horse he was on the racetrack. What's coming down the pipeline? What's next for your operation? We got some young horses uh, that, that are coming up. Um, I got a, a two-year-old that uh, ran last year once. Our love on the run. Um, she's coming up. She's training very well. Uh, I have a, I have a nice filly, uh, our working girl with Wesley Ward. She's in uh, Keeneland right now. Um, I won with our audios Jersey this last week. She's a night. Nice, she's a really nice filly. She's two for two. Um, so we got, you know, we got some, we got some stuff coming up. We got some, some good stuff and, uh, you know, I'm not scared, you know, we're going to buy more and, you know, I'm a sicko. I, I keep buying and buying and buying and <laughs> claiming and you know i love the game so as long as i can as long as i can afford it i'm going to keep rolling <laughs> i love it and just you know what's that feeling like when when you get a big win i mean with a horse like ladies island or penny price or any of them because you're active at, at all the levels of racing yeah it's 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 great you know it's it's what i do it's what i it's why i do it i mean you know people that you know aren't in the game uh, they, they just don't, they don't know what they're missing. You know, I mean, you know, it's obviously, you know, it's hard, it's difficult, you know, it's hard to make money. I mean, you, you, you know, I guarantee nine out of 10 owners lose money. But uh, if you, if you go to a track, you win a race and you're in the winner's circle, you know, or even if you're were there with a friend or you're on TV or you're with a friend and they won, I mean, you don't even have to bet. It's just, it's just a feeling that you cannot describe. Um, I mean, you just can't. I don't know if you've ever owned a horse before. Yeah. Uh, I race. I mean, I know you own horses and you know yeah. ride them and whatever, but it's just it's it's a feeling you cannot just just it's just it's like you know your kids are born and then it's like right after that and you know it, it, it really <laughs> is. I mean, it's it's just it's it's a it's an unbelievable feeling. It's a passion and uh, you know, I'm in I'm in it in all levels of it. You know, I mean, I claim, I buy sales, I buy privately sometimes. You know, I, you know, I sell, I do broodmares. Uh, you know, I breed. You know, I gamble. I mean, I'm I'm in it every facet, and I just I love it. I really, really, really love it. It's like, it's not considered work to me. It's just yeah. it's, it's enjoyable. Very much agree. I think we're we're lucky to be part of the industry. And yeah, I uh, I owned ten percent of a two year old that broke his maiden at Del Mar with Doug O'Neill. And break your maiden at Del Mar. That's pretty cool. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know the feeling. No, I uh, I yeah. actually I, I ran a Del Mar five times. I have two wins, two seconds, and a third. So wow. my Del Mar my Del Mar record is pretty good. And I, that's Honestly, no, no, no offense to, to, to Gulfstream or my home track Tampa, but Del Mar, I love that play. That's like probably my favorite track ever. It was, it was great. I went out there with Wesley Ward and, yeah. you know, we had, it was, it was awesome. It was, it was awesome. I love, I love Del Mar. It's a special place for sure. Winning there even more special, but as you said, any win means a lot and I uh, love hearing from somebody that's involved at all levels of the game. Congratulations on Ladies Island going out in style and best of luck with her selling this week at the Phasing Tips and Sale. Rich, thank you so much for coming on. No problem. Thanks for having me. Thanks. That will do it for another episode of In the Ring with Acacia Courtney. Thank you to everybody that has listened and made the first five episodes possible and special and fun. Please share, reach out to me on social media with ideas, questions, whatever you have. Here's to the next five episodes and a whole lot more after that too. Thank you to my guests on today's episode of In the Ring. As always, we'll see you next time.